Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to podcast number 37 in our series on world history. In podcast 36, we looked at the economic model of mercantilism. We also reviewed the political system called absolutism, as well as the political system called constitutionalism. At the end of that podcast, we touched on the impact of two significant philosophers, Thomas Hobbes and John Locke. Moving forward, in Outline 37 now, we'll begin by looking at this new age, not only in the social sciences, but in the exact sciences as well. First off, in the age now where science is becoming and moving into more of its own in this post-Renaissance world, we come across the likes of Nicholas Copernicus. He's the individual that moved us permanently to a sun-oriented solar system. He will back up the ideas put forth by Christopher Columbus and others that really the object that we live on, this planet, is an orb. It's circular. Again, as I said before, the whole reason why people were willing to back Columbus and making the excursion to Asia by going directly west, which could only have been done if there was some semblance, some inkling that the earth was indeed round, as we talked about before, because everything else in the celestial body is round. But somehow earth is supposed to be flat? Not really. But there was nothing again to prove that. Copernicus is going to open up science for his successors to be able to confirm this. So that's one of his significant contributions. His second is that he was distinguishing the differences between rest and movement. In making simple observations that while one can put, say, a paperweight on top of a table, it can appear as though that the paperweight is at rest. In other words, that there's no energy. But remove the table, and where does the paperweight go? Down to the floor. Remove the floor, and it goes down to the floor below, or to the basement. Remove that foundation, and that paperweight's going to continue to go. So is the paperweight really resting? Or is there energy that just can't be realized yet? And where we, he now begins to start differentiating to where these ideas and the differences of energy. Please note, though, and I'm not taking anything away from Copernicus, he didn't create any new evidence to support his theories as much as he opened up a new line of thinking. That paved the way for roughly 20 years after his death for the birth of Galileo. 
He's going to follow Copernicus's footsteps almost down to the exact lines. However, Copernicus didn't have what Galileo now has, and that's that recently developed object called the telescope to study outer space. But one thing that's getting Galileo is night after night, the objects are not in the exact same space or place as they were before. Something is moving. Either Earth is moving or those objects are moving or both. This is when Galileo largely kicks off a brand new insatiable appetite for more developed concepts in mathematics. He realizes that in order to confirm where an object is and its relationship to other objects, much less to planet Earth, is going to have to have mathematical concepts, mathematical observations, and numbers in order to confirm it. The year that Galileo dies is when his successor, Newton, is born. And Isaac Newton, he comes in by stating that planets move by what he postulates to be a gravitational force. He attempts to answer what Copernicus's question, that the object on the table, why would it fall if you remove the table? If it's at rest, why would it move by a simple removing of the table? Newton is considering this force to that being gravity, something, again, that's going to pull all objects on Earth into itself, but also might explain the gravitational force also being responsible for the way our planets move. Newton's major contribution is if though that wasn't enough. And please know what I'm talking about here in the likes of Copernicus, Galileo, and Newton, doesn't even, of course, cover the tip of the iceberg here. Courses are developed on these, the impact that these men had. But what I'm looking at here is how or what were the significant contributions of these three scientists in the world at large as we move forward in studying world history. Newton's major contribution, Galileo's, was the need for math advanced mathematical concepts and understanding. Newton, he understands of the need for observation of all hypotheses. In other words, Galileo, if you want to say that an object is moving night after night, then there's going to have to be a series of steps in which one can make those observations to prove whether, Galileo, your hypothesis is correct or not. If you haven't already guessed it, he's laying, Newton is laying the groundwork for what we call the scientific method. Humans, going all the way back to the great philosophers of ancient Greece, and I'm not just talking about Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. I'm even talking about the pre-Greek, the pre-three um, philosophers, the likes of Talos and others, as they said, the human tendency is to observe things to prove ourselves correct. That's part of the reason why in modern times we get so wrapped up in first impressions. For those of you that are married, think about the first time you met your spouse, met your spouse's parents, perhaps, or other family members. Even if you're dating right now and not married, think about the first time you've met or maybe you haven't met your significant others, parents, or family members. 
We want to make a first impression and a good one at that. Why? Because we know that the human inclination after our first impression, so in other words, our second and third meetings, all we're looking to do is to try to confirm that we were correct in our first impressions. That's the reason why a negative first impression is so difficult to undo, because every subsequent meeting thereafter, the human inclination is to look for the evidence to prove that your first impression was correct. Newton also, clearly no dummy, and recognizes that if experiments are to be done on the physical earth, in the atmosphere, in outer space, experiments even in this day and age of nothing more than observation, in terms of very spatial relationships, there's going to have to be a series of steps that one could emulate, that one could repeat to prove whether the scientist's hypothesis is correct. This is the reason why when we have new medications coming out, no different than the vaccines now for the COVID-19 virus, we need to have a control group and we need to have the experimental group because the human inclination to want something to work to prove that what we saw or what we observed or what we heard or tasted or smelled is correct is so strong that we have to, to this day, still have these different groups, control groups and experimental groups, echoing back to Newton's theory that we need observation and we need control and experimental groups and the scientific method to prove our observations correct. So again, those are the three great philosophers. By the time of Copernicus's birth in 1473 to Newton's death in 1727, clearly here, centuries have passed. Other scientists have come and went, and many are going to follow the likes of those three great men. But they continue to lay and strengthen the foundation of the scientific world that we have today. Moving along then, we also see that there's breakthroughs in thinking, not only in terms of science, but in terms of observing ourselves. If you go back to the podcast where I introduced the Renaissance and the characteristics of the Renaissance and this rise of humanism and the, de the desire to know oneself, that's not new. Again, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and the likes, they're all talking about the human body and how we know ourselves and what's truth and what's beauty. The life, unexamined life, for example, is not worth living. No, Hobbes and Locke aren't jumping on things for the very first time, but they are expanding it and explaining it in a way that is impacting the formation of governments around the world. Both men, again, Hobbes and Locke, greatly influenced the founding fathers in the writing of the Declaration of Independence and even in the formulating of the eventual government contract called the Constitution. I'm not attempting to take anything away from the founding fathers. They have their own pedestals that they have rightfully deserved. But there's one thing that I mentioned, for example, if you've listened to my podcast on American history, is that if you were to ever take a class in political theory, a class that again examines the origins of all models of government around the world, by and large, you're not going to study the American Revolution or the products of it. Because the American Revolution didn't so much as present something new, rather to hammer out an attempt to perfect a democratic Republican model that goes all the way back to ancient Greece. So with Hobbes and Locke, what 
did they postulate to the then known world that the future founding fathers are going to draw from? Now, mind you, for us, Hobbes, born in 1588 to 1679, Locke, born in the middle of Hobbes' life in 1632 to 1704, both of these men are going to significantly predate our founding fathers. But if the Declaration written in 1776, the Constitution in 17, the famous summer of 1787, Hobbes and Locke are only roughly a little over a century old in terms of their impact and their contributions to human society. So let's unpack Hobbes a little bit to see what the founding fathers drew from him. First off, he stated of the four things, significant points that Hobbes contributed to the modern world, is that humans are pleasure-driven and egotistical. Now, Hobbes gets a bad rap. If you take him at surface value, surface um, layer, right on the surface, and really don't think about it, his words can be twisted to have a negative connotation. Well, humans are pleasure-driven and egotistical. We're just animals. Well, if we're not animals, what are other options? We don't belong in the plant kingdom. By and large, I hope we don't belong to the microscopic kingdom. So we're really kind of stuck there with the animals. But the bottom line is, is Hobbes was correct. Humans are pleasure driven. Don't believe me? What really? Think about it. Be honest with yourself. How do you feel when you have been unable to get something to drink for many, many hours if there's anybody listening here that's been in the military, perhaps, unfortunately, you might have gone more than a day truly without potable water. That feeling of consuming that water is practically like nothing else. Surely it's pleasure driven. That is part of what allows us to survive. It allows us to put our best foot forward. How about individuals that have gone days, if not weeks, without food? It's no surprise that eventually the human mind can't think about anything other than typical food. And when one finally begins to have their access to food, surely it's pleasure-driven. We know how we eat when we're dying to get to our lunch hour or home after work to get to dinner because of how hungry we are. It's a pleasure to eat. Now, having three young kids and two dogs sometimes looking at you and everyone that wants a taste of this or that when we're at a restaurant, yes, sometimes dining out can um, yeah, leave the pleasure right at the uh, door to the restaurant. But by and large, my point being, though, that we are pleasure-driven, but it's also part of our Darwinistic incident to survive. In terms of being egotistical, that's not false either. Because as Hobbes also postulated in his second point, humans exist to meet needs, nothing more. Humans exist to meet needs. And he says nothing further than that. Now, that may seem a little short there. Well, sure, there's got to be something beyond that. But think about it. As long as we have our needs of breathable air, where we can pull the oxygen from it, potable water, food to be able to ingest when we need it, and a roof over our heads would be an, is a luxury. By and large, we don't need anything more. Beyond those needs, as Hobbes says, is really a what? It begins with W, a want. It's a want. There's nothing wrong with that, as he's saying. But as, as he puts, humans exist to meet needs, nothing more. Okay, Hobbes, so how are you tying this into government? 
founding fathers, what are you reading there in Hobbes's writing that you're able to go back and say, hey, here's where we can throw his ideas into our eventual cornerstone documents of the United States. Hobbes put out there that government was needed to keep people in check. That's his third major point. Government is needed to keep people in check. And he goes so far as to say, in his fourth idea, is that he justified the use of force to maintain peace. Again, on the surface, we can reject that. Say, no, no, we're beyond that, Hobbes. Sorry that you might have grown up on the bad side of town, but hey, we're beyond that here. Really? Government is needed to keep people in check. Whoever wants to get a, a voicemail on your phone from the IRS? Who wants to get a letter from the IRS demanding an appointment to review last year, the year before tax records? Nobody's going to grab that and say, wow, what an opportunity to thank the IRS for all that they do. Can't wait to meet them. Can't wait to return their call. Of course not. The government is needed to keep us in check that we pay our proper dollars into the government so that they can provide, again, going back to Hobbes' second point, to provide what we need as human beings, whether it be the paved roads, the stoplights, the school system, etc. Justifying the use of force to maintain peace? Again, I draw your attention back to the events on January 6th at the United States Capitol. Clearly, the authorities were using force to try to restore, to, to restore a law and order. So far from what I've read in the weeks that followed is that there was not one criticism that the Capitol Police used too much force. Anyway, so on the surface, why is the police ever criticized for using too much force? My question is, have you been watching the news for the past couple of decades? Going all the way back 30 years ago to the beating of Rodney King is when the spotlight was turned on with modern technology able now to video record things, to easier, make it easier for us to take pictures. We have definitely come to a conclusion that at times authorities do use too much force. But the absence of force is not the answer either. We do have to feel the pain if we act out. If we attempt to break in and then we're chased by the authorities and we take some, somebody hostage, yes, we're going to be brought down by force. Force doesn't have to be physical. Force can be one that hurts us, that hits us in the pocketbook. Who wants to ever see the colorful lights of a squad car pulling up behind you when you glance down at your speedometer and realize that you were doing 20 miles over, and that might be the good news, because what if you were doing 20 miles over and you're in a construction zone? Oh, yeah. Your mind's already beginning to tally the significant dollars you're going to be paying, and that's only assuming the police officer doesn't find anything further wrong and doesn't find out any kind of other points that you've already have on your record or the fact if you don't have your driver's license to begin with because you were speeding just a couple of days ago and got a ticket, right? That's what Hobbes is saying. He's not saying we have to like government. He's not saying that the government's going to be the life of the party, but that government is necessary and force at times is necessary in order to maintain the peace. Now, let's look at his counterpart there, John Locke, whereas he rejected the idea of absolutist governments, part of the reason why he really wasn't a big fan there of the, of the major monarchs of Europe. 
because absolutism goes against his grain of thinking, his philosophical theory that governments should be established for the people, but also to the people. That central point becomes our cornerstone, not only of the Declaration, but also, of course, of that Constitution. The government must be responsible for the people's security, but to the public record as well. And that's the reason why we have this full disclosure. From everything all the way up at the top to the checks and balances that each branch of government and our federal government has on one another, all the way down to the transparency in my own state and county government in Northeast Ohio, that as my position at Cuyahoga Community College, I work for a public institution. Therefore, an individual can demand, what was I paid last year? How many emails did I send? What phone calls were made from my phone on my desk that technically belongs to the government? This whole idea of transparency isn't new. It goes back to the likes of John Locke when, as he said, absolutism is a recipe for political violence and unrest, and how right he was. Governments, however, that are to be responsible for the people and to the people, he never said was a perfect model. Hello, January 6th. But it's a better model. And it has the potential to establish a longer litany of peace and order for a nation of people who established that government to control their destiny, to control their lives. Not controlling to the point of snooping into our private lives, but controlling us in our interactions with other people so that we do not become a threat, a menace to others, either for their physical safety or for their economic livelihood. That's the reason why the government has the control over the house that I live in. Sure, I can sell it anytime I want, but I cannot keep this property, knock my house down, and then turn it into a Jiffy Lube oil changing place. It's not going to happen. Physically, I'm not hurting my neighbors, but economically, I'm hurting them. Because who wants to buy a house right next door without even a fence separating an oil change place with a residential home, suburban home? So the likes of both, again, Hobbes and Locke is what puts us, in terms of our thinking, moving forward to the eventual founding fathers, put, to, put together a government that is responsible for and to the people. All right. I haven't been talking about the elephant in the room here. And that is that I started this podcast by talking about the impact of the great scientists and then the impact of two of the great philosophers of the post-Renaissance world. I'm sure you're begging the question. Uh, it's been a while, actually just a couple of podcasts, that I brought, haven't brought up the Roman Catholic Church. Where are they with this? How did science and religion dovetail at this particular time? Simply put, they didn't. There was a major conflict between science and religion. And there were three major issues at stake. One is the definite disagreement between science and the Bible. If science is able to explain so much more about why the earth behaves the way it does, isn't it a given then that eventually that's going to start disputing the biblical theories about what biblical stories about what happened on planet earth? 
in the way ancient world? Sure it would, which would lead to the second problem. The mo that momentum was gaining in splitting the scientific and the religious worlds, giving us a rise to the third aspect of this, the birth of a more materialistic world. Now, this is where science was coming down on it. Excuse me, where the Roman Catholic Church was coming down on this. Please know, science disagreed. Scientists did not necessarily say that you have to have one or the other that you actually can have both. You might say, wait a minute, just listen to the news where people are fighting one another, fighting with one another over the eugenesis theory versus the theory of evolution. Well, that's generally a religious standpoint. You have one or the other. What the scientist is saying is it doesn't have to be that way, that you actually can have both. Think about it. In the story of Genesis, the world is created in six or seven days. How long's a day? Oh, that's 24 hours. Well, that's interesting because that time period is a post long after the life of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the life over the uh, well past the lifetime of the authors of the Old Testament books of the Bible, this is thousands of years later that we put the idea of 24 hours as a definition of a day. What if a day is actually hundreds of millions of years long. No, science can't prove that that's what a day is supposed to mean to those authors. But what if? Because you can't answer that also doesn't mean you can't say that a day had to be at 24 hours. Remember just several podcasts ago, not that long ago, we talked about the advent of the clock and the idea of breaking down our day into 24-hour segments. That's to ease our control of our understanding of time and our relationship with one another. But we have no evidence that the authors of the ancient books of the Bible also had this connotation of a day. That where the sun's at right now in the sky, that when it's at the same point tomorrow, 24 hours have passed. There's no evidence in the ancient world that they used anything along the lines of, quote unquote, 24, or the number 24, or any number for that matter. So why then can't a day be a term that instead of quantifying 24 hours, again, is hundreds of millions of years? That's all science is proposing. If you notice that the authors or the ardent believers of creationism and the Genesis theory generally are the ones that don't want the theory of evolution introduced, find me a scientist who is not open to having the Genesis theory taught side by side with the theory of evolution. I'm not saying there aren't any out there, but in my research and interviews that I've seen, I have yet to find a scientist who's close to the idea of the Genesis theory. However, I have found plenty of ardent believers that the world was created in seven days, want nothing to do with science. Again, the fact that evolution says we evolved eventually from the sea, how many body parts we have technically in the human body, we no longer need. But our predecessors millions of years ago, hundreds of thousands of years ago, did. Of course, that's not to say that the Genesis theory is wrong, as scientists have said, right? So with the Roman Catholic Church, they take initially an extremely strong stand against this.
Galileo's writings were banned from ever being reproduced in the printing press. Galileo himself, because he was garnering a following, he was placed under house arrest. Is it any surprise that the more the church tried to silence the scientists, the more credibility they were losing as time went on? Now, just again to show you both sides of the coin and present both sides of the case here, please know that the case against Galileo was eventually overturned. Now, when I say overturned, you might be nodding your head saying, oh yeah, I'm sure the church eventually admitted that it was wrong to do that to Galileo. No. In the overturning of the case, in the language written in that document, the church never once, the Roman Catholic Church never once apologized, never once said it was wrong. It just said that they might have overstepped by trying to silence Galileo. Now, Galileo, again, remember when he, his time frame uh, for, for, the, for Galileo. Remember, we're talking about now 1564 to 1642. When was that case overturned? Believe it or not, not until the 1990s. So today, in this podcast, we went over the rise of three of the significant post-Renaissance scientists of Copernicus, Galileo, and Newton. We also then reviewed the impact of the great philosophers Hobbes and Locke. At the end of this podcast now, if you've been listening, especially since the first one, this is the time to pat yourself on the back. It's a cause to celebrate. Go to your favorite restaurant, get your favorite food and drink. Because if again, if you've been listening since the first podcast, you have listened to the equivalent of what is taught in a college survey course in what they call History 1010 or History 101. Congratulations. In the next podcast, number 38, where we'll start next time, that will be the beginning of what we would call History 102 or the second half of world history that takes us from this time period in the 1600s all the way to 2021. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsola.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have. If you like what we discussed today, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a fantastic day.